0: You can be seated. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Some of you look very well. doesn't look like you lost an hour of sleep at all this morning. In fact, turn to the next person next to you and just look at them. Put a big smile on and say, you look marvelous. Oh, come on. You can do better. You look marvelous. Great. The marriage meter just went up five points. You're welcome for that. Pastor Jerry's on the spring break today. We pray for him. Uh, His little adopted daughter, Eliana, they're visiting uh, some of her relatives and stuff. So they're having a great weekend, I'm sure. Uh, But it's a joy to be able to uh, stand before you and do the teaching today. I want to pose a question to you that I've been thinking about for several weeks. Why is it that some of our friends and family just have a hard time giving their lives to Jesus Christ? Why do they seem so hard toward Him? What keeps them kind of their stubbornness from repenting, from turning from their sin to following Jesus? It's almost like maybe you have some some family and friends like this. They want to make sure they just keep a little distance between themselves and God and church and anything to do with it. So this morning we are going to explore various reasons people will not yield or submit their their life to Christ. But in Acts chapter 4 that Lucy read for us, we're going to discover that it really boils down to one basic truth. One reason. It's kind of hard to get your mind around it. But this is the reason why people cannot or will not accept Christ as Savior. And then we're going to leave this morning, I pray, full of great hope. Hope in our hearts for our own salvation, but hope for even our most hardened friend. Because I want you to know, friends, uh, your prayers for them are not in vain. And the spiritual interactions that you have with them, God will use. And God's grace and mercy is powerful, more so than beyond our imagination. So we're going to follow up. Today on chapter 3, Jerry spent the last two weeks preaching on chapter 3. Let me try to condense that to get us a running start to where we are in chapter 4. An extraordinary miracle had just taken place at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Peter and John were coming into the temple 3 in the afternoon. They noticed this man who was crippled. He was lame from birth. Next week, we're going to discover that he was over 40 years old. They had nothing to give him, no silver or gold, as he begged for help. But they looked him square in the eyes, and in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, they told him to get up and walk, and he did. And he's been jumping around all of Jerusalem ever since chapter 3. Quite a miracle. And Peter used this occasion to preach a very powerful message that we heard about last week in chapter 3. He preached about the power of Jesus, whom the people had rejected. And even though they put Jesus to death, Peter said, God has raised him up. Therefore, we need to repent of our sin, reverse our stance, so that we might be blessed in our right relationship with God the Father. So we continue that story now in chapter 4. The religious elite get involved. Notice in verse 1, we have the priest, we have the captain of the guard, the temple guard, and we have the Sadducees. And they grab Peter and John and throw them into jail. Decades ago, a man by the name of E.K. Maltby used to say that Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be absurdly happy, that they'd be completely fearless, and that they'd be in constant trouble. All three of those are right here. I mean, they are happy as can be, they are fearless, but now they're in trouble with a religious elite. Now, wouldn't you think that the healing of a crippled man who'd been in this disabled state For over 40 years. Wouldn't you think that would bring joy to the religious leaders? Wouldn't you think they'd be excited for this man and his family? Oh no. They've got their heels dug in. They're hard. They're upset about two things. We see that in verse 2. They're upset that Peter and John were teaching the people... And the second thing, they're upset about what they were teaching. Let's take a look at this for a moment. First of all, they're just upset that they were teaching the people. I mean, teaching the scriptures, teaching religious truth. Isn't this a job for their professionals? You know, what are you guys doing? You're fishermen. You're not rabbis. You don't have their credentials. So they're upset the fact that they're even teaching the people. And I think they're probably a little bit jealous because the people are taking this teaching in. You know, when the priest taught, my guess is maybe a lot of people didn't listen. When the priest taught, they didn't really live up to what they were teaching. They were hypocrites. The people knew it. There was no passion in their teaching. How much passion can you put into, don't do this. Do this. Every week. Stop it. Do it. How much passion can you put into that? And yet, Peter and John are talking about this person whom they crucified, whom God has raised from the dead. These priests had no spiritual power in their lives. No healings were taking place through their teaching. Now, you do understand, don't you, that Peter and John had no power in and of themselves to heal either. You understand that, right? This is the work of God. This is the name of Jesus being used. Peter and John were men like you and I. There's nothing in them per se that could heal anyone. But they had the power of the resurrected Christ at their call. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I, we have no power in and of ourselves to heal people, but we do have the one in whose name healing happens. So they're upset. You guys are teaching. Second thing they're upset about is what they were teaching. Peter and John were proclaiming resurrection from the dead. Not only was Jesus, whom you crucified, been raised from the dead, but he offers a resurrected life that we can be in eternity with our heavenly Father. Now notice these people who arrested Peter and John, the priest. Now get this, because many of these priests probably assisted in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus himself. The captain of the guard had probably been involved. They were the gatekeepers. They were the security officials of the temple, the keepers of the peace. They were the guys who had the concealed weapons, making sure everything was orderly and things didn't get out of control around the buildings. But the real instigators that were identified here are the Sadducees. Now, you don't hear a lot about the Sadducees in the Gospels. You mainly hear Jesus skirmishes with the Pharisees. But the Sadducees are there as well. Now, according to the historian Josephus, the Sadducees were from the upper economic social echelon of Jewish society. They were the power brokers. They were the wealthy. They cozied up to the Romans. They wanted to keep peace because they wanted to keep their position. And a lot of the priests were from the Sadducean party. Some of them were Pharisees as well. They're not mentioned by name here. There are these two religious parties Sadducees, Pharisees, vying for enough delegates to get their guy to be the high priest of the temple. But the Sadducees, in their religious beliefs, did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in an afterlife. There is no afterlife. Hence, there's no rewards for you. And there's no penalties for you after death. In other words, there's no heaven, there's no hell. So this teaching... Of a resurrection sent them into a frenzy. Especially claiming that Jesus whom they would crucified was raised from the dead. And so the first persecution of believers in the book of Acts comes at the hands of the Sadducees. They arrest Peter and John. They throw them into prison for the night. The official court session was not going to be allowed until the early morning hours. So the religious heat, they just throw Peter and John into jail. Maybe they're thinking, well, you know, good night in jail, and maybe they'll reconsider what they're talking about. Let them sleep on it a little bit. Maybe they'll change their preaching. But notice in verse 4 that about 5,000 people heard the message of Peter and believed in Jesus Christ. 5,000. The preachers are going to jail, but 5,000 people are undeterred in their belief in the name and power of Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. If you remember a few weeks ago when Jerry talked in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were saved in Peter's first sermon. In his second sermon, 5,000. I think he's getting better in his preaching. Now, we're not too sure about the time lapse in between these two sermons. The preaching at Pentecost, where 3,000 became followers of Christ through this supernatural gospel speaking in over a dozen different languages. We don't know the time span. Could be a few days, could be a few weeks. But obviously, the numbers of Christ's followers in Jerusalem is increasing. Scholars estimate at this time the population of Jerusalem was about... 250,000 people. quarter of a million people. I had an accountant check my math, but that's about 2% have accepted Christ in response to this second message, 5,000. 2% of the entire population have seen a crippled man healed and they respond to the gospel message. Even though the preachers are thrown in jail, the people still believe. This is an amazing work of God. So the trial is the next day. All of these religious officials show up. They put Peter and John in the middle of the court. They're surrounded by their accusers. Again, remember many of these same priests and officials had put Jesus on trial. They would pushed for his crucifixion. Four are mentioned by name, two we know nothing about, John and Alexander. Nothing. Some speculation, but we really know nothing about those two. But Annas and Caiaphas, oh, they're real familiar to us. We've encountered them before. Caiaphas was the younger high priest, and Annas was the retired high priest, although he retained the title, sort of like, you know, George Bush. We call him Mr. President. He's not president anymore. He still retains the title. Caiaphas was the son-in-law to Annas. They kept this power in the family, these Sadducees. They weren't going to let go the religious elite of their power. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus was first brought to trial before Annas, and then sent to Caiaphas. Let's look at these verses on the screen in John 18. So, the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him, and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient For one man to die on behalf of the people. So they're already plotting the death of Jesus Christ. Annas, Caiaphas. And now they have two of Jesus' disciples. Peter and John in their midst. It's like we've been here before. We're going to do this again. It worked once. It will work twice. This is called double down. Double down is a gambling term. I apologize ahead of time that I know gambling terms. <laughs> it's usually used in blackjack when you place a bet and you look at your cards and you say, man, the odds are pretty good here. I'm going to double my bet. I'm double down. Some in poker call it a continuum. You are so Confident, You're going to make a continuation bet here. The odds are in your face. You can't lose this thing. And what happens sometimes is you wind up backing yourselves in a corner and getting into a situation you can't get out of. Do you have any friends or family in their attitude toward Christ is sort of like that? You bring it up once and they go, Look, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. That's your thing. That's fine. Leave me out of it. And then something happens and you sense a little prompting of the Holy Spirit. And you bring up a spiritual conversation. And it's like, no, I'm going to double down on this. I told you, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I already told you that once. and, And they just keep backing away. So Annas and Caiaphas, they demand... Of Peter and John. By what power? Or what name have you done this? What's the power? What's the name that you have healed this man? Now it's interesting. They do not deny the miracle. Kind of hard to deny this miracle. There's a lame guy 40 years. He's running around jumping all over the city of Jerusalem. They can't deny the fact of a miracle. I don't want to steal a lot of Jerry's thunder for next week. But look look ahead here at verse 16. Because after after this trial they go, what shall we do with these men? What are we going to do with Peter and John? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. It's a fact. So they can't attack the facts, so they have to attack the power behind the facts. By what power? By what name? Who is this resurrected Jesus, which is a fact that they won't yet accept, but it is a fact. They can't prosecute a miracle, so they tried to prosecute, once again, the name and the power behind it all. Jesus, whom they formerly prosecuted and crucified. So Peter preaches again. He defends himself before the magistrates. I want you to notice that Peter does four things here. I think it's very interesting. First of all, you need to notice that he doesn't open his mouth until he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is critical. In our study in the book, Just Walk Across the Room, hopefully you've seen time and time and time again in your spiritual engagement and conversations with other people, let the Holy Spirit lead. Don't force it. Listen to the promptings and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He'll help you on what to say and what to do. So, very critical here, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter is. There's no effectiveness if he just jumps out there in his own power, in his own name, to try to get himself off the hook. First thing's critical. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Second thing is, he draws attention to the fact that this miracle is a really good thing. You know, basically what he's saying in his conversation with the magistrates is, you know, are are we on trial Because of a benefit done to a sick man? Are we on trial? Are we being condemned because health and wholeness has come to an infirmed individual? Isn't this a good thing that's happened? You know, when you're sharing Christ with other people, particularly when you're sharing your salvation story about what God has done in your life, you're sharing something good. This is a good thing. Before you came to faith in Christ, were you not blind, but now you see? That's a good thing. We're sharing about the power of God to change us. To forgive us, to heal us, to show mercy to us. This is really good news. So go in the power of the Holy Spirit and know what you're sharing. This is a good thing. This is good. Third, he credits the power to the name of Jesus. Peter keeps the focus on Jesus. Not himself, not even the cured man. And so when you're sharing your faith with Christ, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's not about your healing, it's about the healer. And we got a healed man, he's jumping all over Jerusalem. But Peter doesn't point to that necessarily. He points to Jesus, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And the fourth thing Peter does, now he draws on Scripture to reinforce the message that it's about Jesus. Notice Peter doesn't pull up Scripture first thing in his defense. Well, the Bible says, no, he waits, he's led by the Spirit. He says, you know, what's happened here is good. And yes, it has to do with the name of Jesus. And now let me point this to you in Scripture. And he does so by quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is part of a section of Psalms called the Hallel by the Jewish people. The Hallel, it starts in Psalm 113, finishes in 118. So there are six Psalms. They would recite them, or actually they would sing them, during all of the Jewish holidays and festivals. So all the Jewish people, particularly the priests and Sadducees, would know the Hallel, the hallelujahs, by memory. And if you were to go back and look at these praise songs, Psalm 113 to 118, they all kind of say the same thing, and they would sing it at Hanukkah, and they would sing it at all the different festivals, you know. They were jubilant thanksgivings to God for saving His people. God, you saved our nation from distress. You delivered us from our enemies. We exalt you for that. We praise you for that. You've given us righteousness to your people. And in the Hallel, particularly in Psalm 118, they would look forward to the time when God would send a final vindication of his people in the form of a Messiah who would bring complete, final salvation. God, we praise you for the coming one. And so look at what Peter points out here in Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You get that? They sing this all the time. There is coming one whom the world will reject, but God is going to choose as the chief cornerstone. And this is happy. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes when we get to see it, for this is the day the Lord has made. What's the day? The day when the Messiah is revealed. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Wow, every festival. They were singing about the coming Messiah, the one that the builders would reject, but God would use to bring salvation to his people. It's a marvelous thing, a day that God would make. Do you think these priests and Sadducees ever sang this before? Oh, yeah. And this isn't the only time they've encountered this. Because not only did they hear this when they're sitting in judgment over Peter and John, they heard the same thing when they were sitting in judgment over Jesus Christ himself. Look back with me in Matthew 21. Jesus is talking to them. And he asks the questions, Hey guys, did you never read the scriptures? Hey guys, did you ever sing this song? Did you ever shout to God this hallel? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, after Jesus is quoted, Psalm 118 from the Hallel. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. This is probably a prediction of the, the coming of the church. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when Jesus finished speaking that, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. (laughs) Oh, I think he's talking about us. Oh, yeah. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. At this time, they thought Jesus was just the prophet. Oh, but wait till the resurrection. It's all going to change. I think the accusers in Acts chapter 4 were well aware of the stone they'd rejected. They'd done it once. Now they're doubling down. In their pride, in their confidence... We've done it once, we can do it again. We can put an end to this. And so Peter closes with one of the greatest closing arguments a lawyer could ever come up with. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men By which we must be saved. Wow. The stone you rejected. No other name. No other power. No other authority can save humankind. Well, like I said, this has led me to wonder the last few weeks. Why people will not yield to Christ. Why they even seem to double down and get a little more obstinate in it. I've thought about it for a few weeks. I've read with great interest the stories in the book, Walk Across the Room. <clears throat> Particularly fascinated with some, you know, it took eight, ten years to come to faith in Christ. Because they just kept Christ at a distance. I even put this out on social media and asked the question why people are hard to Christ. I put it on Facebook. I got 25 written responses. That's pretty good for Facebook, in my opinion. Because anytime you put something serious on Facebook, anything spiritual, you get like one or two likes. And you put some stupid picture of you on vacation, it's like 200, you know. (laughs) Facebook is not a real serious social media. It's there for comic relief, I'm convinced. But I took these thoughts and I kind of condensed it to why people are hard to Jesus. Not just once, but maybe twice, maybe continually. They try many ways... To get to heaven. They try many names. To get there. But there is no other name. Than Jesus. Came up I think with with seven. They kind of overlap. Reasons why our friends are hard to Christ. First reason. I think some of them are, are like the chief priests. The concept is just so foreign to them. Their world view of salvation has to do with keeping some kind of a religious law. you got to do something. And the concept of a risen Savior who's died on the cross for our sins and offers us free salvation through grace and mercy if we would repent, that's just hard for people to get their head around. Surely there's something I must do. I got to work. I got to be good. My morality will get me into heaven. And I think a lot of our friends are like that. They, they view Christianity that way. And they say things like, well, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus Christ. But I'm a good person. And I'm going to get into heaven because of my good name. <laughs> it's like, hello, God. I'm David Byrd. I did a couple really good things while I was on the face of the earth. My name ought to get me there, right? No, there's there's no other name. No other name. I think people try to save themselves by their own name. I often wonder about people and they think they're so good. They may not trust in Jesus, but you know, I'm, I'm going to get there on, on my own good works. I've often wondered, what happens if you fall short just a little? And what's, what's the standard that you're living by? And what if you miss that standard by just a little? I mean, you're just going to compare yourself to somebody else. Now think about our Muslim friends, you know, they're supposed to to pray five times a day, face the Eve. A lot of them don't do that. They're supposed to give alms to the poor. I often wonder, you know, what at the end of life? Oh, man. I missed it by one prayer. I missed it by five dollars that I didn't give to those poor people. What kind of a life is that like to have to live, wondering, did I do enough? I think a second reason our friends are hard to Christ, kind of like the captains of the temple guard, they think belief in Jesus, man, that's just not the popular thing to do. It's not what I'm paid to do. I'm paid to do this job. We're going to put Jesus on trial. We're going to put you in jail. We're going to put you on trial. I'm not losing my job over what I just heard you preach. I'm not going to lose my standing in school. I'm not going to let the popular people, the religious elite, look down on me because I might consider following in the name of Jesus. That's not for me. I like the hand I've been dealt. I'm going to keep it and hold it, pat, and protect it as best I can. I like my life as it is. I'm not yielding to Jesus. I think a third reason some are like the Sadducees. They're just so independent and self-sufficient. I'd be willing to bet you have some friends, they just don't need Jesus. I'm doing pretty good without Him. What's Jesus going to do for me? I have status, I have money, I have power, I have my things. I don't need Jesus. Fourth, I think there's some people just... Enjoy their sin. I don't want God messing with my life. Some of the things I'm doing, I know they're, they're not right, but I'm going to do them anyway. I'll not let the name of Jesus interfere with my desires. And they reject the stone. Five, I think we have some friends who've been hurt by religions and religious people, and religious institutions. I just pray they didn't have Christian in front of it. And I think what a lot of our unbelieving friends need to see, they need to see genuine believers. Not trumped up ones. They need to see the real deal. They need to see... A person's accepted Christ, but they need to see a person who's working through their fellowship of Christ. I love in the, the book we're reading, Bill Heibel's out sailing and he lets a cuss word go. He's been with these lost guys for eight or ten years. He lets one rip. What's he do? He goes back and he apologizes. That wasn't Christ like. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect. Would you forgive me? And I, I think his, you know, um, friendship meter went way up after that. People in the workplace, they need to see us in our real selves. They need to see people in the workplace. They don't know how relationships work. They need to hear sometime, man, I got mad as a hornet at My wife. But after I got settled down, I was so full of myself, I went back and apologized. They don't see models like that. They need to see real, genuine believers who are struggling with their sin, but have firm faith in Jesus Christ and the power of His name to change them. By the way, our children need to see it too as we raise them. Six, I think some of our friends have genuine questions about the supernatural. They have questions about a God that they they just can't see. Some of them are so pragmatic. And in their mind, science seems to deliver on explaining every little detail to them. But trust me on this. When they really get alone with their thoughts... Or they see something happens, a healing, something supernatural, something that goes bump in the night. They have to wonder about God. And I think that's when God gives us an open door to share the power of the risen Christ. Last reason I came up with is, I mean, there's just a cost involved in following Jesus. (laughs) It just is. You knew it the moment you said the prayer to repent of your sins. You know, there was a cost. To follow Christ fully, devotedly, unashamedly. And I think a lot of people fear that. And so it's a lot easier just to be a little hard, to double down, to double down, to keep playing the continuation bet until they trap themselves in a corner. But what it really boils down to is one thing, and we've all been guilty of it. Every one of us here this morning, we've been guilty of it. We, at one point, rejected the stone that God has raised up to be the chief cornerstone of life itself. Every one of us, we have rejected Him whom God chose and has exalted far above all else. We have rejected the very answers to our deepest questions. We've rejected healings to our hurts. We've rejected the, sal- the satisfactions to our desires. And so we have friends and family who have just a hard time yielding their life to Christ. They seem hard. They want to keep distance between themselves and the Lord. They reject The stone that God has put the central part of the universe. The stone of life. The cornerstone of salvation. But let's leave here this morning with with great hope. There's hope. For you if your heart is hard. There's hope for our most hardened friend. As I said in the beginning, our prayers are not in vain. God's mercy and grace is powerful beyond what we can conceive. And our hardened friend, most of all, needs an ever-loving friend who will not give up on them. I won't give up. I want to see you in heaven with me. In a few weeks, we're going to come to chapter 6 in Acts. And when we get there, I want you to remember the number of times the priests have doubled down. The number of times they've heard about this Jesus that they crucified, but God's raised from the dead. The number of times they've heard about the stone that they've rejected that's become the cornerstone. Because God is not going to give up on these priests and Sadducees. Peter and John are not going to give up on these priests and Sadducees. Final verse, Acts chapter 6 verse 7. This will put a hallel in your lips here. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. It's it's, it's 2% and up. Here we go. And here it is. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that great? Make a movie out of this, would you? For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And that's why we listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That's why we love our friends. That's why we make new friends who are far from God. That's why we spend time with them. That's why we try to be genuine with them. That's why we fill Easter eggs and go do events across the street. There's no other name, folks, by which we can be saved. Except Jesus, who we crucified, but God raised from the dead. We're going to come and share in communion this morning, and maybe it'll have a little new twist for you when you come and you, you take the, the wafer and you take the juice to remind you of the body broken by Christ for your sin. His blood spilled for our sin. No matter how good you are, this was the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate gift. The name above all names. The only way you and I can be saved. Let's pray together.